Open to Matthew chapter 16. It's the first book in the New Testament, pretty easy to find. And the text is provided for you in the bulletin. I will add, uh, I'll read in addition, verse uh, 28. Our text is Matthew 16, 24 to 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's cold and cloudy, so let's go to the beach. Summertime. You like swimming in the ocean like I do? You have to be very weary of riptides. That's the place where water builds up near the shore and finds a release and rushes out with a torrent. Many people who get caught in riptides drown and die because intuitively you think, I'm facing all this rushing water, I'll turn and immediately make my way back towards the shore as quick as I can. That instinct will kill you. The experts say, counterintuitively, if you get caught in a riptide, let it take you out to sea, and once it's dissipated, you can swim around the riptide and get safely back to shore. And you're thinking, as if, who wants to go out to sea? Why do I tell you that? It's one of those life principles where what saves you is actually counterintuitive to what you think. The same is true, beloved, in the spiritual world. Jesus is saying in this text, which I will say, personally, I think this is the hardest saying in all the Bible. Jesus is saying, to find your life you must lose it. To save your life, you must give it up. To be right with God, you must give up all rights to yourself. We humans find this very counterintuitive. We crave our autonomy, our freedom, our mobility are self-determining powers. You don't believe it? Give me your cell phone and your car keys for a week. You'll, you'll feel like the world has come to an end. We are hardwired from the time sin entered this world. We are hardwired to possess, to protect, to preserve ourselves on our own terms. And so Jesus is saying, no, counterintuitively, 
if you want to live, you must die. And you think, nothing in life seems to communicate that. Really? Look around you. Every plant that exists started as a dead seed. Every single plant started by a seed being planted in the ground. It died and it came to life. So actually the principle is everywhere around us. Let's unpack it. And I want to do so first by looking at the big question. Jesus asks you this morning, beloved, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? So imagine all the countries, all the possessions, all the, everything in the world is yours. And then you're nothing. What's the profit? In a sense, he's really asking this question. Is there anything in the world more important than you? What's the answer? Well, yes and no. Let me explain. Is there anything in the world more important than me? Yeah. For starters, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the infinite king of glory, the Lord of lords, the self-created, the uncreated creator. He upholds all things in the universe by the power of his word. He is infinitely more important than me. He does things I'll never do or ever dream of doing. There's nobody more important in the world than the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, by comparison, puny, finite, vastly limited, and minuscule in terms of the big picture. Right? But... On the other hand, is there anything, any possession in this world more important than you? Have you thought about that? That's what Jesus is saying. Think about it, my friend. Jump into his reasoning. If there are only ultimately two destinies for you and me, heaven and hell, then regardless of how insignificant you may feel right now in the grand scheme of things, there's nothing more important to you than preserving you for all eternity. Right? Jesus appeals to this sense of self-preservation in his preaching, Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will perish. You've been warned. He's really saying, stop and think about the unthinkable. It's possible to live forever in agony. We don't like thinking about that. We don't like preaching on it. (laughs) Jesus described that place as an unquenchable fire. And in Matthew 25, when he talks about our ultimate accountability for what we do with our lives. Matthew 25, 30, he says, cast the worthless slave into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unquenchable fire, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you hear that, what are you supposed to say to your soul? Whatever you do, soul, don't end up there. Isn't that the assumption underneath Jesus' question, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
We're talking about you. You have nothing else, just you, either in eternal agony or eternal glory. So what would you forfeit for eternal glory? A pizza? A fling? A world record? A billion dollars? Is there anything worth exchanging your soul for unspeakable torment? Ironic that this illustration comes on the heels of the Waterhouse fire last week, but here's the illustration. Conventional wisdom says if your house catches on fire, you, you, if you're able to, you grab all the important things, not the toaster, not the napkins, you can replace those. You grab the pictures, the family documents, the, the heirlooms, take them out with your kids and the cat, of course. The Bible says the world is going to catch on fire. It's going to burn up. Second Peter chapter 3, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And Jesus is asking you, what are you going to preserve in the fire? How many of you, the house is on fire, would say, oh, here's my favorite CD. Here's my favorite book. Oh, this painting I like. And be consumed in the flames? Of course not. Why? There's something more important than the CD, the computer, and the picture. It's you. You're more important than those things. You're irreplaceable. They, they, they can be replaced. I'm calling this the economics of eternity. Make a profit and loss decision, Jesus is saying. The gain of eternal, personal welfare outweighs the loss of any temporal thing. So do you see what Jesus is asking you to do? Ask yourself, how valuable is my soul? Can you put a price tag on your soul? Jesus says if you gain the whole world, I mean, of course, that's not even possible, but suppose it was, you f and you forfeit your soul, what is your gain? Nothing. Now, here's what's interesting. The word forfeit was used in the ancient Greek for shipwreck. A shipwreck. Jesus is saying if your priority is that what the world offers you, what most of us are motivated to get, sum it up as power, possessions, pleasure, position, and prowess, the five Ps. I'll say them again. The things we're all motivated to get. Power, possessions, pleasure, position, and prowess. If you want those on your terms, not God's, and you get all those things, not on God's terms, you shipwreck your soul. So when Jesus says, if you wish to save your life and lose it, he means you're living life on your terms, not God's. You're living life as if you have sovereign rights over yourself, as if you're self-created, as if you think there's no greater authority you will answer to than yourself. That, beloved, is certain shipwreck of your soul. Meaning in hell, you will have lost the inner makeup of what it means to be a person. You will be unraveled, confused, humanless, detached 
from what makes you glorious as a human being, and that is what makes us glorious as human beings is who we are in fellowship with God, filled with love and truth and beauty and joy and peace and holiness and goodness and wonder. That's what it means to be human. And if you want everything this world has to offer on your terms, not God's, you will have none of that for all eternity. The world can't give you what it takes to be human, and that is to be in fellowship with God. C.S. Lewis some of you probably know the quote that's coming, wrote this. If you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you get neither. So if your soul isn't one with God in this life, it never will be in the next. What's the point of this first point? The humble heart says, I want my soul to belong to Jesus Christ. I want it lived under his lordship. I don't want shipwreck. Number two, losing your soul in order to gain it. Sounds kind of counterintuitive, right? You're in the riptide. Don't swim against it. What would convince you and me to want to do this thing that we're hardwired to want? I want my life on my terms. What would convince us to change? Simply this, that you find life in the one who lost everything to gain yours. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Jesus know about losing himself in order to gain something? He knows everything about that. At the beginning of his ministry, Satan offered him the world on Satan's terms, and Jesus refused. He had something better in view, your precious soul. On the cross, Jesus exchanged his safety, his welfare for agony in order to make his bitterest enemies his closest friends. Think about what Jesus lost on the cross. He lost his dignity to purchase yours. He lost his father to make him yours. He lost his sinless humanity to clothe you in his righteousness. He lost his moral purity to bear in his body the impurity of your sins. He lost his life, blood, and breath to give you breaths forever in paradise. What did Jesus find when he lost his life? You. He did it for you. Paul says you're, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. So let's go back to the burning house image for a moment. Jesus is in Gethsemane. This is right before he is betrayed and arrested. The start of his passion, his suffering. He's in Gethsemane. In a sense, the fire starts. And he prays to his father. I want to get out of the house. In a sense, isn't Jesus saying to his father, there's nothing more important on earth than me? True? Yes! <laughs> what could be more important on earth at that point than the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Son of God? What could be more important? Who would think of taking the peerless, priceless son of man and consuming him in the fires of judgment. His father and he would. 
so that you'll never, ever face the fire of judgment. That is the amazing love of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, beloved, on the cross, I was being consumed in flames. You must join me there. Give me your life. And what will be consumed is the person guilty of sin, the person deserving hell, will die with me. And because he rose from the dead, a new person will be risen. The moment you trust the gospel, a new person is created that is guaranteed to live as Jesus lives forever. No wonder he says, follow me. We're his followers. How could we not? His life for ours. And it's no coincidence that in the preceding verses in chapter 16, actually the whole chapter is about who is Jesus. The Pharisees don't know. They want signs and this not. Jesus takes the disciples on a retreat to Caesarea Philippi to find out what the crowds are saying. And Peter gets it right. You're the Messiah. Next thing Jesus does is he predicts his death and resurrection. The revelation of who Jesus is is always conjoined with what Jesus came to do. He will be betrayed, he'll die on the cross, and raise again on the third day. Whenever he predicts his death, he predicts his resurrection. That follows the moral imperative for all those who believe that message. That's how this text is working. That's because Jesus' life is our life. Crucifixion followed by resurrection. Marty read earlier from John 12, the same idea. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the grain of wheat. He would die. He would be buried. He would be raised. And that fruit is all those he is calling to know him and to be loved by him and to trust him and to believe in him. You're the fruit of Jesus, the wheat, being dropped into the ground. But the same applies to us. Whoever loses his life excuse me, loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, hate is a Jewish idiom that, that's expressing fundamental preference. So if you walked out in 20 degrees without a shirt on, your fundamental preference is to be warm. When you know what Jesus did for you, your fundamental preference is Jesus, not my sinful, selfish lifestyle. That's what Jesus is saying. See, sin would have you believe, don't give yourself over to Jesus. What? Jesus didn't die to give you a life that's worse than the one you have now. Jesus died to give you a life that's infinitely better. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, we count everything as lost because of the glory and value and worth of knowing Jesus. Didn't Jim Elliott capture it well when he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus gives you Everything. He gives you his love, his wisdom, his power, his sonship, his presence, his joy, his word, himself. Himself. Last point, and that is dying to stay vital. If you want what Jesus accomplished for you, what does that look like? It's verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, by virtue of the tense and the word follow, it means deliberate, conscience, conscious, thoughtful action. Following Jesus doesn't just happen. You don't wake up tomorrow and go, I'm resolutely following Jesus. 
It doesn't just happen. You, you have to think about it. It's not when you get around to it. It's not when you feel like it. It's not, I follow Jesus on Sunday, but the rest of the time I live for me. No, you follow Jesus as if you're following somebody out of a dark cave and they've got the flashlight. You follow Jesus like the, tr- the train is hugging the rails. You follow Jesus in self-denial. But what is self-denial? Let me tell you what it's not. Self-denial is not ceasing to take care of yourself. You should take care of yourself. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Self-denial is not you cease to be a person. No, Jesus died to make you a more glorious person formed in his image than you could ever do yourself. Following Jesus doesn't mean, well, if I want it, it must be bad for me, as if, you know, if it tastes good, it has to be bad for you. No, that's not right. There's lots of things. Well, what did Paul say? 1 Timothy 6, 17, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Denying Jesus is simply asking, what do I want and why do I want it? If what you want opposes God's plan, his precepts, his goodness, and his glory, then what should you do? Deny it. If what you want hinders you from enjoying and imitating Jesus, deny it. Jesus said, if your hand reaches out for something that causes spiritual death, cut it off. Cut it off because he loves you, he made you, and he wants what's good for you. I think Paul's reflection on this is in Colossians 3.17 when he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What do you want to do? What do you want to think? What do you want to say? Put Jesus' name on it. Does it fit? (laughs) So beloved, whatever stands in the way of you glorifying and enjoying the glory of God, that should be denied. And whatever issues out of a heart that is under the control of the Holy Spirit, that should be enjoyed. And to make no mistake about what this means, Jesus said, take up your cross daily. The Romans used crosses to what? Slow people down? Harm them a little bit? Distract them? No, they use crosses to kill people. That means what, are, what is any inclination in your soul for your glory and not God's, what is it worthy of? The death penalty. Because it isn't any good for you and doesn't bring any glory to God and can never redound to the good of your neighbor. Kill it daily. You and I are daily in the need of dying to the propensity of our hearts to rule and serve and promote ourselves. However good your Lord's Day is today, when you get up tomorrow morning, the propensity in your heart is, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. Even if you're not consciously telling yourself, there is an infinitely better way to live. It's all about Jesus. Get an appetite for that and you'll get addicted to it. I think that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. We're not struggling to be free. We're free to struggle. Last thing, very briefly, there are so many heart graces that emanate from this reality. I'll just mention two. One is sobriety. Doesn't Jesus say in verse 27, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will render to every man according to his deeds. He's just called you to follow him, and he said, look, there is a coming judgment. You can't trivialize anything about your life. You say, well, Lord, how do I know what's really important? Light from the cross. Bring everything before Jesus, everything. And light from the cross of Jesus shows you even small things can be very important in God's economy. 
serving him in small ways, changing your child's diaper, phoning a single friend in need, whatever it is. Whatever it is, the Lord will call into account our lives. And he should, he must, he will. The reason for having an eye to the final judgment, the reason, what a privilege and a glory to live for that day in the light of the love of Jesus. What can that love produce in me that on that day God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. One last heart grace, and there's many we could tease out, and that is I have it in your outline, confidence. And it's simply this, Jesus isn't going to take you anywhere he hasn't gone. He took up his cross. He was lifted up. He was crucified there. Whatever path Jesus Christ is leading you down, he is with you. Self-denial then, beloved, becomes its own reward because you find your soul and your spirit in the pattern of Jesus. What follows crucifixion? Resurrection. You will find that acts of self-denial produce eventually resurrections in your life. Lord, give me eyes to see those. I'm so encouraged by the words of the Apostle Peter who wrote at the end of his first epistle, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What a promise. Fill us with confidence. The last thing to say is that verse 28, Jesus makes this very hard to understand statement about some of you standing here won't taste death until the Son of Man comes again in his glory. What is that? I'm not sure commentators have to speculate. It might mean this, that the coming of the Son of Man is manifest on this earth day after day in the lives of people who take up their cross for Jesus' sake and live for his glory. That brings the kingdom glory. Let me pray for you and for me. Thank you for these precious, beloved saints, men, women, and children who love you. You've given them ears and a heart for the Word of God. Now, Holy Spirit, give them understanding and joy and peace, zeal, discipline, hope, encouragement to love this Word, to love you, to see their lives in the light of Jesus took up his cross to gain us as his perfect, precious, eternal possession. Change us and make us like you for your glory.